a lot of our customers, when we come in, uh, they usually say, oh, our workhorse is in a pretty good state. But yeah, we would just need to make sure that we do a couple of data checks. And then we start using robots to scan the information and actually capture the real state of the warehouse. And usually the first reports show a very, very different story. So um, the first kind of step is, is showing them actually the reality is a little bit worse than what it would be. We use autonomous robots to scan warehouses. So it's as simple as that. Uh, we have um, robots that are about 12, 30 meters tall. Um, they navigate for the autonomously warehouse. They go aisle to aisle and capture information from top to bottom in, in one go. So pretty much scanning the warehouse um, multiple times a day uh, from, from wall to wall. It would capture a lot of data. Somebody needs to act I mean, act on, on, on the issues that we're finding. Um, and with all customers that have done that and have kind of been very diligent, um, we've seen huge impacts in, uh, in the way that accuracy has, has jumped. So how did you decide then to build a company in warehouse robotics? And uh, what is actually the wildest thing about, about it looking back? I mean, the wildest thing is that we decided to build a company in <laughs> robotics. There's been multiple challenges, literally from, from day one. I would always kind of tell people, ask me like, I'm thinking about starting a company, what should I do? I mean, it's going to be very hard. You have like no idea <laughs> how hard it's going to be. Probably the one I would say lesson um, and, and advice to others would be... Welcome to Fem Lead, the podcast on female leadership and role models. This show aims to inspire and equip you with the tools you need to navigate your career plans. Fem Lead brings inspiring career perspectives and strategies to guide your path to success. Your host, Alexandra, will interview role models on new exciting topics with each episode. If you like what you hear, give us a review and subscribe to the show on your preferred streaming platform. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of FemLead Podcast. Today, we have Wana Jinga joining FemLead Podcast, and I'm super excited to be introducing her because Wana is one of my role models, and what she does is really, really, really cool. She is the CCO and co-founder of Dexery, a highly innovative robotics company and data company based in central London. With a background in leading strategic partnerships at Google and developing innovative products at Telefonica previously, her career touched on various areas of the tech world, having found a sweet spot in designing, developing, and bringing robots to the logistics industry to drive significant business value across all warehouse processes. She's very passionate about educating the world on benefits and ethics of robotics, as well as the importance of building unbiased AI. Wana is really a person that you want to learn more from. She's really, 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 really cool. And also she is a, a leader in a male-dominated world. She will be sharing some of her experiences, but also some of her successes in being a co-founder. So without further ado, let's welcome Wana to Family Podcast. Wana, hello. Welcome to Family Podcast. It's really a pleasure to have you here. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you. Just a strong start to 2024, full on back. <laughs> Yes, I, I I know it's packed and I think we, we've talked about uh, how to find the time and how to prioritize uh, meeting up because we've been following each other for a while, right? So I'm really, really happy that we get to do this and uh, thank you again for taking the time. Super excited to have you here. We want to talk more about your role, about your journey and also about Dexery. So let's start with the first question, which is uh, telling us more about uh, what does your role entail? You are a co-founder, CCO, and product officer. So what does the role mean and how um, does it work uh, when it comes to shaping and leading uh, Dexery strategy? 
I would also like to point out that uh, you focus a lot on the commercial versus product side. So how do you also balance that aspect of, uh, of your role? Thank you so much for having me, first of all, and happy that we fi finally, finally got to, to speak. Um, right. Well, um, I mean, it, it was quite a long question, which means there's probably a long answer in there. Um, so um, I will probably start with my role. So I've, I've been a co-founder at Dexery from day one, which is almost nine years now. Um, quite a long journey. I've kind of worked with the team from uh, step to step. Um, and over the past year, I've been mainly focusing on commercial and product, just like you said. So on the one hand, I look after the sales and marketing teams, um, a little bit on the investor side as well, together with my co-founders. So in this, I pretty much capture all the uh, external audiences that interact with uh, with Dexory. And then on the other hand, it's the product org. Um, and here we specifically wanted to um, separate a little bit in a way the, the product owners and, and the people kind of managing the product strategy roadmap from the full tech teams who are actually delivering on that roadmap. Um, and have them sit somewhere in between the customer and the internal teams. Uh, so what I do a lot is um, kind of obviously we'll work with them to set that product strategy by bringing insights from the outside world, so all the other stakeholders I'm obviously working on as the commercial lead, and then um, bring all of those, wrap them up, make sure we've done all our research and all the, the kind of steps that we need to to inform a good product strategy, pass that on then to the, uh, the tech teams to, to build uh, uh, the actual thing that we're <laughs> deciding to, to build. Um, so we felt um, kind of having products sitting in between a little bit separate in a way um, as a team uh, does help them to be um, a little bit more I'd say objective versus the internal kind of hurdles and understanding of complexities, um, but also not as, um, I would say, not as part of the commercial team, which would mean they will be too close to the customer. So then again, um, not having that commercial outlook around if one customer wants something, it doesn't mean the whole market does the same. So um, by having that separate entity, they can make very good judgment calls and, and have enough data points to make decisions. Uh, like I said, it's a pretty long answer, but uh, it's uh, it's where my role sits. It's the intersection of the two worlds. It's fantastic. And I think for many of our listeners, that's a, a sweet spot when it comes to career journeys. So people want to get to this point where they have a variety within their role and they also have different skills that uh, can complement uh, uh, themselves. So when it comes to getting to this sweet spot or understanding this is a role that uh, that you need to have. Did you make any reflections or um, how did you build up the role to what it is today? Was it a general or a natural progression of the co-founding journey or did you think about it strategically? It's a great question. Um, and I think it's a bit of both. First, because um, when we started the company, um, it was me and two other co-founders um, and I was the I say business person, uh, from my studies, from my previous experience, from everything I was doing at the time, um, I kind of joined the team to support with customer acquisition, customer insights, like everything that, um, again, kind of reflected on the outside. The matter to co-founders are heavily technical. Um, so naturally, I kind of evolved on the commercial side by just from day one and kind of grew, grew with, uh, with the company. Um, on the product side of things, uh, it is quite new kind of added to, to my remit. Um, and it was a strategic decision, like I was saying earlier, to where do we best position this team? Um, and similarly, kind of from my previous experience, I've been quite close to product teams um, at Google and at Telefonica um, in, in past roles. 
um, and then trying to kind of bring that knowledge as much as I can, as well as the market um, insights to to, to product um, organizations. Um, it's still a journey. I'm still learning a lot. Obviously, it's a very different way of working. There's a lot more process and structure behind product that I'm literally learning with the, with the team. Uh, and they're educating me a lot on it. Um, but uh, the decision to to do it was definitely strategic, as I was saying earlier. Fantastic. And wh- how did you decide then to build a company in warehouse robotics? And uh, what is actually the wildest thing about, about it looking back? I mean, the wildest thing is that we decided to build a company in warehouse robotics. Um, no, it's a, it's been quite a natural transition to us. So if I take a step back nine years ago, um, where we initially started was with an idea to build some sort of a robotic system that would capture data and information. Initially, that was from inside the house. Um, so we, have, we used to have a robot that would um, navigate people's homes, capture security data, interact with the people in there and everything else. So it was very much kind of end consumer focused. Um, we pretty quickly kind of realized, yeah, this is going to be a very complicated, expensive product that obviously the market was not necessarily ready for, like, like I said, almost 10 years ago now. Um, so we moved over to, to the B2B side of things. Um, and very quickly, we were pulled in by the retail sector, um, developed a very strong product for um, actually in-store uh, data acquisition around inventory on shelves, which is uh, just something that people spend a lot of time on. It's quite tedious and boring. Um, and had launched a product uh, in, in the space, um, went to market with it, had customers going, and then COVID happened. Uh, so for us, uh, the transition was a little bit forced into this whole new world that we had no idea about, which is warehousing and logistics. Uh, when some of the retailers we were working on on the store side, obviously they had to close the stores, they approached us, is this something you can do in warehouses, um, like data collection, inventory management, stock taking. Um, and I think I, we had the same reaction as a lot of the uh, people that had never worked in, in logistics would have. It's like, what is this thing and why do you even have to come? I mean, obviously you wouldn't know where everything is. Well, it's reality is not really there. Um, so um, it was um, in 2020 and of 2020 that we decided to completely shift to logistics, never look back. Um, so like I said, that was kind of probably one of the surprising things is that we made that shift, um, knowing very little about the market back then. And we've kind of become absolute experts in our field, like knowing every single step, every single kind of yeah cubic meter of a, of a warehouse and understanding what's happening in there and kind of growing a team around that of, of experts in the field afterwards. Um, so again, not a very straightforward answer because it's quite a journey to get here. It was, uh, driven by a lot of market pool and customer pool. Um, but like I said, very, very happy and thrilled that we've done it because, um, mm-hmm. we, we fit right in. And I think it's a very good reflection on how companies are built because of course you have an idea and of course you want to be successful or ideally at least learn to the point where you're like, okay, this is how we pivot, but getting customer feedback and validation and then being able to take those learnings and actually build up another part of the product or shift completely and actually be successful, it's hard. And a lot of companies fail with within this time of like, uh, within this frame of, of pivoting, right? So I think you're also sharing the fact that it's not straightforward uh, anyway, having a company and you might need to... Um, push a little bit back on the dream that you've had when you started and then actually listen to your customers and realize the product has a, a different, uh, uh, let's say, um, path on itself, you know? And that's also a very good, I would say, reflection to share to the listeners that it doesn't have to be as you've imagined, but if you're open and 
you put in the work, then you actually might find the the, the sweet spot of, of the market and then be successful there. Because you also, um, and this was one of my questions, you also have a very interesting technology that you that you sell, and of course the the digital twin platform. But a lot of our listeners maybe are not necessarily uh, logistics nerds, and I, they don't necessarily know how how it works. So, can you provide an overview of of Dexery's technology and how it differs from traditional warehouse data virtualization platforms um, and uh, management systems? And maybe also tell us what is a digital twin uh, technology because um, this is also a key part here when it comes to the product that you that you sell sure so if um if i start by saying okay what do we actually do at dexery um so there's two sides of uh, of our product our solution number one is we use autonomous robots to scan warehouses so it's as simple as that i mean um, there's a lot more complicated technology behind it but uh, we have um, robots that are about 12 13 meters tall um, they navigate fully autonomously a warehouse they go from aisle to aisle and capture information from top to bottom in, in one go so pretty much scanning the warehouse um, multiple times a day uh, from from wall to wall as they say it um, and with the sensors the cameras and, and all the different things on the robot um, they capture bits of information um, about the actual state of the warehouse. So where are the goods located on shelves, like how big they are, how many boxes there are, uh, things like, um, I don't know, environmental sensors and temperature controls, understanding like, is it too hot, is it too cold for the goods that are in there? Um, other things around like um, just the, the overall kind of quality of the environment, um, are the racks on the on which the goods are placed in good condition, is it anything broken? And similarly for the goods, are they in good condition and so on? So there's a lot of kind of data points we capture. Um, now these these points obviously show how the warehouse look looks at that point in time, um, which is what we call the the current physical state of the the warehouse. Uh, now the digital twin, on the other hand, is our digital platform where all these data points from the robot get pushed um, in real time as the robot is scanning and compared with various different systems of our customers. So it could be a warehouse management system, it could be a labor management system, uh, sales systems, whatever else that they they have. Um, and then find any discrepancies. So for example, if we find a pallet in a location, but in the warehouse management system, it says that isn't, it shouldn't be there or that it should be somewhere else. Obviously, we kind of highlight that, that discrepancy. Um, and we build, um, with these data points, a whole uh, 3D environment of the warehouse, which we call then the digital version of the uh, physical warehouse. So digital twin pretty much is this digital representation of a physical object on which you can start adding different layers of data points. You can start doing simulations um, in the digital world with it, uh, move things around, drag things around, uh, and then see how we would react uh, if that would happen in the physical world as well. So pretty simply, it's a um, it's a digital representation of that object that you can play around as much as you want with it without breaking the real real one. And when ready to make any changes, obviously, then you come back into the real world and, and make those changes. Um, so um, yeah, the... Uh, the reason we do both, um, there's this quite a, a few companies, I mean, not necessarily in this field, but uh, that focus only on data collection or other companies that focus only on the digital twin. Um, so um, they would take, I don't know, a, a, let's say a, a 3D file of when a warehouse was built, let's say from the architectural plans, and they will build a digital representation of that and, and obviously allow for that to, um, to, to be simulated on. However, the advantage that we have and where we are very different to, to anything else out there because we have the robots, um, we have the most kind of accurate and, and real-time, literally, data from the warehouse versus any other system out there 
who relies on other parties to provide that data, which usually is quite old, it might be broken, it might be mistaken uh, because it was taken a, a while back. So what sets us apart is, um, yeah, we have both the data collection element and the data visualization, and the communication between the two happens almost in real time. That's fantastic yeah. because one of my one of my next questions was how do the robots work in tandem with the data visualization platform? And I think you've just explained the the idea behind Dexery's and Dexery and why is the company uh, really on a on a very a promising path because it has access to both technologies. And I would like to to follow up then with asking you, how do you see the effects of uh, of the, the different parts of Dexery? So for example, um, what is the impact that the, the technology had on, for example, efficiency, accuracy in supply chain management? And perhaps if you can share a success story of or case study that uh, where the technology of Dexery really significantly improve the operation for a client? Yeah, we have quite a lot. I'm just to, to try and make sure I don't say anything I shouldn't say. Um, but um, I think in, in essence, um, and then we were talking quite a bit with, with our colleagues um, over the past couple of weeks, um, a lot of our customers, when we come in, uh, they usually say, oh, our workforce is in a pretty good state. But yeah, we would just need to make sure that we do a couple of data checks and then ensure that obviously we push it from, let's say, a level of accuracy of like 98, 99% to close to 100%. And then what usually happens is we start using robots to scan the information and actually capture the real state of the warehouse. Um, and usually the first reports show a very, very different story. Like the actual the actual accuracy is probably somewhere between 90 and 93% versus what they thought of it being quite, quite high, 90, 99%. Um, and that's usually because there's all kinds of random things that have been left in the shelf or that they forgot about or that nobody ever actually looked at or counted because it is kind of time consuming and, and boring to go kind of aisle by aisle and, and do that. Um, so, um, the, uh, the, the first kind of step is, is showing them actually the reality is a little bit worse than you thought it would, it was because, yeah, nobody's actually checking these things they are. Um, so step one of the impact is actually showing them and opening their eyes of what is actually happening there. And then step two is because we scan warehouses every single day, multiple times a day, and we capture a lot of data, somebody needs to act, I mean, act on, on, on the issues that we're finding. Um, and with all customers that have done that and have kind of been very diligent around, okay, yep, this is, this is the issue. Let's try and fix it as soon as possible. So we don't kind of let it replicate. Um, we've seen huge impact in, uh, in the way that accuracy has, has jumped. So from that kind of 91 to 93%, it did actually go to 99 and even close to 100% um, in, in just a few weeks by ensuring that people do actually act on the data. So what I always kind of tell our customers is like, look, we're, we'll, we'll show you things, we'll suggest ways of actually kind of improving it in the digital twin. But at the end of the day, you are owners of your own destiny. So if you don't act on it, you're not going to see the impact. And everyone who's literally, yeah, like I said, kind of acted on the information um, has seen a great shift in their business. And um, maybe the one thing I should have explained as well is um, having accurate warehouse data and having accurate supply chain data actually across the entire supply chain. So see, from uh, the moment a, a piece of material or even a, a final good leaves the factory to when it gets to and then customer or whatever it needs to get to, step-by-step um, -step understanding where that item is, is absolutely crucial for, for a company. Um, I mean, especially post-COVID, the, there was a, a, a huge kind of drive to overstock um, make sure that there's enough kind of product everywhere. So there's this probably about, uh, I was just reading a study about 10, million, 10 trillion actually um, uh, in, in overstock sitting somewhere in, in different parts of the US. 
because of that panic moment. Whereas if you have that visibility and you know exactly where things are, um, obviously, so you can get rid of that and then make sure that the impact on the business revenues um, is less and less. So that visibility is absolutely essential. Um, and um, in terms of success stories, I think, yeah, I probably mentioned uh, we, we work a lot with uh, smaller third-party logistics par- partners or bigger ones. From the smaller side, um, we have a customer here in the UK called Linkline. Uh, they are a small player, but they're very nimble and agile. They usually have warehouses for multiple customers, so they're not dedicated to one customer. Um, and they were one of the ones that very quickly kind of jumped from that 92, 93% to very high 99 point, even, even almost 100% ones. They had like a couple of things, like three, four things out of 55,000 that were out of, out of place. So, um, I know it might not sound a lot to our listeners if you're not from the sector, but that is absolutely insane in terms of, of our house management. Um, and we also work with, with the guys at Maersk, uh, with DB Schenker, so some of the bigger names as well. Uh, where similarly, regardless of the size of the company, you will see very similar results. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. And we can all attest to that because uh, also your success stories are shared online, which I think it's it's very important. Visibility and also progress on, on the company's uh, success. I think it's super important. So every time I see you post or the team posting uh, some numbers and some percentages that we know in the industry that are very, very good, um, there's always a, a, a round of applause following and a lot of comments yeah. saying that you're doing a great job because it is indeed um, maybe uh, an overlook aspect of if efficiency, you know, the actual integration of, of solutions in general and what impact those can have, right? And I'm happy you've mentioned some of the names that you collaborate with because I'm sure that if you ask individuals in, in, in those teams, they will be able to, of course, uh, validate that and, and share the, the success. So that's really, really great one. And I'm really happy you also talk more um, in depth about uh, what does the company do and uh, what is your role in it? Because one of the reasons why we also met today was to discuss uh, career progression and also what does it mean to be a co-founder. And uh, I'm very happy to to be able to listen also to some of the um, more technical aspects of your role and also encourage more of our listeners to go for those jobs and try it out and see what can happen when you start a company or when you become a, a product officer or uh, or a commercial officer in uh, in a startup because the journey is really incredible. You really learn a lot and it's really, really exciting. And because we're talking about innovation, uh, which is the key in the tech industry, um, how do you then foster a culture of innovation at Dexery? Of course, beyond the fact that you have, um, uh, of course, also integrated the robots and you've created a platform, but how do you stay ahead of the curve when it comes to technology advancements? Yeah, I mean, uh, with the nature of what we do, you kind of have to, I mean, in every a lot of the things that we're building have never been built before. Um, so automatically the team that we build around the product is, I mean, highly innovative by nature because they are some of the top people in their, in their sectors and in their game, uh, who automatically have a tendency to try and stay on top of the trends, stay on top of what's been found out there, read a lot, be part of communities, um, and, um, yeah, I mean, and so on. So I think the, the number one thing from my perspective is, always kind of try and listen to what's going on around you. Um, and I know we're talking about, in a way, technology and innovation, but even on things like ways of leadership or management or, um, and you were saying earlier that as a founder, you just learn on the job a lot. Um, I mean, yes, I did sales in the past and I was on commercial roles in the past, but it's very different to actually leading the commercial organization. <laughs> so uh, all of these things, you kind of like get hit with them and you have to run and, and, and do it. Um, but, um, you can't do it 
very well without kind of trying and learning from, from the ones around you. So that it's not just obviously on the product side and the technology side that we're trying to be innovative, um, which again, by nature, you will have to be because you are doing something new, but it's in the way you do it as well as a manager, as a leader, as a manufacturing process, for example, like we, we uh, probably should have mentioned this, but we're an end-to-end provider. So we design, make the robots and install them. And then obviously everything else on the digital twin as well from building it and maintaining it and everything. Um, so across all of these different teams, the way they approach work and structure their, their to-do lists and then the sprints and everything else, obviously there, there's innovation coming in there as well. Um, but yeah, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier, always keeping your ears and eyes open to like what are others doing, what's good, what's not good, uh, and trying to learn from that. And of course, there's also the aspect of um, um, being uh, mindful and open to what is new outside your industry, which I'm sure that you also listen to and, and, and are aware of. Um, and I think that's also where the innovation can appear, where you're discussing with your clients and you're looking in the market and you see, okay, there's an opportunity here. The cool thing I feel about having a startup is that you already know how to approach this, um, let's say, um, curiosity about, you know, can we do something else with our product or can we create another product segment altogether from the business? And because you're already in it, I think you have way more uh, drive to try it out. So I think that's also a great part of, of being part of this uh, startup process um, in general, that you actually have the drive and the access to the talent and, and trying out. And I'm really excited to see the journey one. It's really, really cool to see you Thank also you. shine and see that the company is doing well. I'm really, really happy to see that. And because um, I admire you uh, beyond, of course, being the co-founder of Dexery, but also as a leader, um, you are um, a prominent figure in the on, in a technology-driven uh, field. So, have you faced any challenges um, by 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 being such a prominent female figure in the in the field? And how do you overcome, in general, what you believe to be a difficult situation or challenges? Because we have listeners who would like to be leaders or who consider or who are on the path or they've already become uh, maybe leaders in their first management role. And uh, what they want to hear is how do you overcome challenges to go to the next level of your career? Can you share any reflections on your experience? Yeah, um, I think there's been multiple challenges. Um, literally from, from day one, when I actually get decided to to join my co-founders and start this and um, at every single step across the uh, across the way, um, just trying to kind of think how to position from an advice perspective because the the number one thing I've done is I've not, not really listened to any of them and uh, um, just kind of keep keep going on on my path if that makes sense and on our path as a company because yeah on the one hand the personal journey but also the company you you will get a lot of hurdles or it's like oh, are we really doing the right thing here or not um so the the number one thing uh, that I always kind of go back to my team is like don't take advice from people that are not where you would want to get to <laughs> i know it's a kind of cliche word but uh a lot of times i've seen a lot of people will come to me and say you should do this this and that or and i'll then go back to it and understand like well is that really coming from a good place or like is that actually something i want to follow so um just just kind of keep going on your on your own path um but um, I think that the number one, from my perspective, was always 
to your question earlier, kind of understand what's going on around you, only pick the things that can definitely help you grow and, and focus on that growth. Um, always try and kind of learn new things and accept that you're not going to know everything. I mean, it's very easy as a founder that you find yourself leading a company now we're, we're over 100 employees now, right? So as I was saying, um, the three of us are still kind of learning in, in a way and still the beginning of our journey as leads. Um, and then from there, um, just kind of understand that you're still going to have to to continue on it. And I think uh, an important part that you've also mentioned in the beginning is the um, the metaphor with the arena in general in life. I love that you've mentioned that, you know, you hear advice, but of course, consider if it is relevant for you or if it comes from a place of experience, um, because a lot of people have opinions about everything. And the more people you ask, the more opinions you will get. But I also think something that I wanted to highlight there um, that I I believe I kind of read it between the lines and please let me know if that is not the case. But there's also something about intuition and trusting your gut, knowing that, you know, I got this and if I'm not successful, I really wanted to try it out and fail on my own terms rather than not try it out at all. And there's something there about asking for two much advice in general, and then not starting one of the paths and seeing where that can take you because you're waiting for the best opportunity and the best scenario and the best team and the best time and so on. And I feel like something I also hear from your advice is that perhaps you should try it out and trust yourself and see where that takes you. And of course, along the way, gather the right people and the right mentors, but don't stop just because someone told you that mm, this doesn't seem to be like the right thing to focus on. And uh, I think it's important to remind the listeners that part of like uh, trusting your gut, that it's quite, uh, I will also say cliche. <laughs> no, absolutely. And um, it's a the I would always kind of tell people, ask me like, oh, why did you start a company? Or I'm thinking about starting a company. What should I do? I mean, it's going to be very hard. You have like no idea <laughs> how hard it's going to be. Uh, and if anything, it never gets easier. Like we always kind of said in, in, in our team, like as founders, like, oh, if we only raise this round, then yeah, it's going to be much easier. We can hire more people. And oh, if only we get this customer in, like there's always like, just when this happens, it's going to be, it's going to be better. It's going to be easier. It never is. Like the complexity is only kind of growing. I was saying earlier where we are now with quite a big, big team, you have no idea how many people issues are going to come up when you get to, to a big team, like things that you never kind of even thought about, obviously, then in the early stages. So there's always going to be something and you have to kind of go back to that gut feel and go back to that grit, the grit and the resilience and kind of keep yourself to go from one step to, to the next. Um, so it's definitely not easy, but the rewards of it and kind of seeing that you are building something um, almost like from scratch, right, um, is uh, it, it's just kind of the, the reward of that is, is just beyond anything that I've, I've imagined. Um, and sometimes people are driven by different things and their motivation is very different. So I always kind of say my co-founders are because they're so passionate about the product and technology in it. Obviously for them kind of being seeing that coming to life and, and seeing how we push the boundaries on another step of the tech is is what drives them and excites them. Uh, for me, it's more around kind of like the actual building of a business and the actual building of a team to seeing how like things kind of work with one another, how obviously we're bringing a bit of an impact into the world. And it's it's just very different things that motivate. And always going back to that kind of element that motivates you is, is very, very important to keep you going. Um, so yeah, to, to your um, point earlier, it's the intuition and yeah, the grit and the motivation that you always have to have in there and go back to. 
Absolutely, absolutely. When it comes to um, entrepreneurship um, and uh, difficult conversations, you mentioned people. What did you learn from all of those experiences? Because you cannot build a company alone. Well, you could, but uh, it it won't scale, right? <laughs> so, what do you what do you advise listeners that um, that are really in this growth stage, maybe, and and they're they're having uh, thoughts or situations where it's it's difficult to to handle a team, or it's maybe not as easy as they imagined. Uh, and absolutely, you, that was lesson number one is you but no matter what you do, you cannot build this alone. And especially you can't scale this alone. Like you might have a very good core team, but at the end of the day, that needs to be able to to scale and, and, and grow. Um, maybe like um, well, I was quite an idealistic uh, leader at the start and then manager at the start. I always thought there's a way that you can actually turn people around and, and help support people to, to kind of go to where you want them to go. But what I've kind of learned very quickly is not everyone wants to kind of make that change and then kind of develop with your company and you will have to make some very harsh decisions um to to let people go or to kind of repurpose them in different roles and everything else so probably the one i would say lesson um and, and advice to others and i know it's like there's a lot of advice out there but <laughs> not trying to go on the same route but um it would be if you ha- again going back to the gut field if you feel something's not right and this applies to people as well uh, then then act on it because uh, it might not happen today. The person might still kind of push through and, and do a bit more, but in a month, two, three months from now, um, that will kind of fail again. And um, at the end of the day, again, because you're a scale-up or startup, you might not have the luxury of time to allow people to fail too many times. Um, so the one thing that we we have focused a lot on is to push this kind of high-performance culture, really focused on speed and quality of execution. Um, and sometimes it really pushes uh, our teams out of their comfort zones um, and we do have very candid conversations, like maybe a startup environment is not the right environment for, for your skills, for like where you are right now in your life and kind of try and support them to, to move on. So, um, as, as harsh as you would sound, I think that was probably the biggest thing for me is you have to make your decisions as a leader and as a manager, uh, probably a lot more than you, you are also comfortable in doing, but they're all for the greater good of the team and uh, the com- of the company at the end of the day. Absolutely. And I would like to ask for your opinion on something related to that, where I personally have encountered this in my journey working in startup, but also personally, there's something there sometimes, and maybe that comes with uh, growing up where you don't want to be, or maybe this is more of a, let's say, uh, instilled uh, what is so-called female traits that you don't want to seem too harsh meaning that you don't actually do what you know it's right because you don't want to seem as the person that is um, always unhappy or always uh, too difficult or, you know. And even though um, as a feminist, I don't see how does that relate with actually being a professional, I see myself sometimes thinking, oh, was this maybe too harsh? Even though I know myself that I'm a kind person and I will never purposefully say something, um, you know, to, to, uh, create a negative outcome. But sometimes of course you need to be more straightforward or of course, you sometimes need to make difficult situations. Have you encountered this feeling and did you do something if you did to like, do you have any sort of mindset that kind of takes you through that? Um, or maybe you just from the beginning knew that this is the right way to go and, <laughs> And yeah, no, I definitely didn't have that from the beginning. Um, and as I was saying, I mean, also when you start as a company, um, you have a group of, I don't know, 
five first, 10 people, 12, 20 people, even kind of like going in 25 and 30, where um, you kind of like, you get very attached to people because you're a small group, you do everything together, you work nights and weekends and everything, like pretty much you're nonstop with each other and trying to build something. So there's some really, really big attachments. And one of the big lessons that um, I recently got from uh, from a coach I've been working with is like, yeah, the, your, your A team that takes you from zero to one, it's going to have to be very different from the team that takes you from two to three because the type of skills they have, The again, going back to motivation and grit, that the, the second part of the team coming in meet your first team, it's going to be very different. So sometimes your your initial players can't adapt as quickly as you want them to the new culture and grow with that culture and, and kind of have that that growth mindset to to understand that the company has to move forward and it's now kind of moving from here to here. Um, so there will be some decisions you have to make about the, the older players, which are going to be very, very hard because you build everything together. Um, on the other hand, as well, with the new players coming in, you can't expect them to do too much to adjust to the old ways because you have to remember they were never there. They had not kind of gone through the same pain and hurdles and kind of seeing things coming to life. So they will be more like, okay, I'm doing this now and it's very specialist and just a very different mindset. So understanding kind of those differences to me was absolutely fundamental. And I think when that happened, that kind of enabled me then to kind of take a step back and think whatever we do is for the greater good of the team and the company. Because if you do have a few of the players that are not adjusting to it, the kind of culture they're creating around themselves is going to be a big clash with the culture of the company. And then a lot more people around them are going to start having issues with that. Um, so um, it's kind of, yeah, th- those two elements around like you have to understand people don't necessarily kind of grow with the company. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just they, they, they just don't necessarily fit into the new environment. Um, and the second part is, um, yeah, one kind of issue can then replicate very quickly across the company and really impact everyone else. Uh, so actually your team would be thrilled if you make that decision for them because they probably won't be able to, to do it themselves. Absolutely. I'm very happy you've mentioned this because you also give us a lot of reflections on your, not only actually your own uh, co-founding story, but perhaps how scale-ups become successful because now you are at 100 plus employees. So of course you have a lot of, um, of lessons uh, that you've learned, but also you've also met a lot of people and worked with so many different personalities. And I would say at this point, quite closely, of course, maybe you don't manage uh, so many people on a daily basis, but uh, within the, I'm sure that within the development phase, you've met and worked directly with many, many personalities. And that's really cool because then you also understand okay, who am I as a leader? Who am I as a manager? But also how do I make this team succeed? And what are the different decisions I have to make, right? To make that uh, to make that successful. A super, super relevant. Thank you so much for taking the time, Ona. You're giving us a lot of gold here to to reflect on, but also to to take on in, in our journeys. And uh, as a, a reflection to to wrap up our, our interview here, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, reflecting on your journey with Dexery, what has been the most, I would say, turn or unexpected turn or surprise um, in the development of the business that really you consider shape the company's trajectory? I was thinking about that for quite a while when you first mentioned it, and it's it's hard to kind of pick one particular element. Um, I always say like at every stage, there is something that happens to trigger the next stage. And for us, number one was actually kind of finding our first kind of employee we don't really say kind of call him one of our funding funding team members so after us three kind of the first person to really believe in what we're doing and support us building it and he's still with us absolutely kind of leading a huge part of our of our team uh so that like with yeah without him 
that's the way we would have been here. Um, and um, then after that, obviously, kind of taking our first uh, investment, which um, I mean, probably no surprise there, but it was it actually came in the in the shape of grant funding, so from the European Union, which I'm not going to go into Brexit now, but that was absolutely fantastic again to kind of give you that fuel to move to the next stage. So there's always something that uh, unlocks the next step. Um, and, and that was why it was quite hard to, to kind of take that one moment. The first customer, um, obviously then the first office and then, and, and so on. Um, so all these, um, they're not saying that they're happening out of nowhere, right? Because you work a lot to actually make them happen. But every time they do happen, like we're always a little bit, not necessarily surprised where, oh, wow, <laughs> we achieved this. Okay. Now let's focus on the next stage. So, um, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a complex and complicated journey, but, uh, very, very kind of, um, see offering and then exciting at the end. Absolutely. And I want to wrap up this interview, Anna, with the final five fire questions where you will give us even more, even more uh, nuggets of wisdom. So before we wrap up, please tell us what is one book that you read and you think everybody should read? Um, very recently, it's Multipliers. Um, it's Multipliers um, talks about how um, the good leaders make good people and good teams. Absolutely recommend it. Fantastic. Can you share the best piece of, of advice that you have ever received and uh, perhaps also how it influenced your life? If, what I was saying earlier, go back to, to your grit. <laughs> um, and it's something that I always kind of um, think about every single day I'm waking up in the morning. Okay, let's do this. Um, yeah, jump back from whatever happened the day before. Fantastic. Who is your role model and uh, what qualities or achievements do you admire most in them? So many, and it's hard to pick one. Um, but I, uh, I would go to Michelle Obama. I really love her style because um, we are we are obviously in a, a kind of female focused uh, theme, um, and um, just the the grounding that she has and the calming nature mm. that she brings in. However, still being very firm, direct, and pushing you forward. So, kind of that combination is something that I'm still trying to find, um, and I think it does require a particular mindset and a lot of kind of learning and experience to get there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. If you were to have another career completely unrelated to what you're doing now, what would you do? Well, not a lot of people know this, but I did study acting when I was very young. <laughs> okay. So yeah, if, uh, if things would have gone the wrong way, I would have, yeah, went the wrong way, maybe the right way, or I don't know, it's a different way. Uh, yeah, <laughs> probably would have been at the Golden Globes in the weekend, but... <laughs> There you go. That's really, really, really fun. That's really fun to know, Anna. <laughs> and lastly, if you could change places with someone for a day, who would it be and what would you hope to learn or experience in that time? I'm very controversial in this one, but I would I would love to trade places with um, with Andre, our CEO. <laughs> and, then it's the, and then probably one day with Adrian as well, with our CTO, um, and then kind of see things from their perspective. Um, I think we, while we have the same journey and we've done things together, we are still very different individuals and we complement each other a lot. And then, yeah, we do kind of like clash a lot as well, but I think that's what kind of brought us to where we are today. But I would love to kind of see things some days <laughs> from where they are. And I think yeah, it's probably kind of similar from their perspective. Um, yeah, I know I'm kind of talking very closely <laughs> to, to, to my day-to-day journey, but I think sometimes it's fascinating to put yourself into other people's shoes that you are interacting with on a daily basis. Absolutely. And I think it's also very cool that you actually not only admire your co-founders, but you would also like to see more about their perspective or more of their perspective to understand them even better. Right. I mean, it's a it's a I think it's a great uh, 
uh, ending message to share also to your co-founding team that uh, you you really trust them and you want to continue to build a, a successful team. Thank you so much, Juana. I hope you've enjoyed this interview. I really had fun having you here. And um, I wish you honestly the best of luck with the company. You're doing a great job. Thank you so much, Alexandro. And keep telling these stories um, because yeah, I, I do feel like I've learned a lot from them and uh, hopefully others as well. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this interview and stay tuned for more inspiring interviews with role models. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Fem Lead Podcast. Share the news with your friends and follow us on social media at Fem Lead Podcast everywhere.